0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshalden and today we're going to talk to Jean Taillet about her history of the Métis Nation. Jean Taillet lives in Vancouver where she is senior counsel to the law firm Pape Salter Taillet. She is an Indigenous rights litigator who's appeared before the Supreme Court of Canada in 12 separate cases. She is also an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Law in the University of British Columbia. A real polymath, Jean Taye is a visual artist who has also worked as a writer, dancer, actor, choreographer, director, and producer. She is the great grandniece of Louis Riel. And today we are talking about her book, The Northwest is Our Mother, the story of Louis Riel's people, the Métis Nation, it was published by HarperCollins in 2019. Jean, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy practice to join us today.
1: I'm pleased to be here,
0: Greg. Now, you've delivered an exciting and very readable history of the Métis people. Uh, first and foremost, I think it's a story with a very clear narrative arc. Have you had any experience writing this kind of narrative history before you did this book?
1: Absolutely none.
0: (laughs) So why did you feel that you had to write this book? You were a litigator for many, many years. um, And uh, Obviously, I think you were trying to fill a gap, maybe, that hadn't been filled by academic or popular historians, but you must have had other motives as well for writing the book.
1: Uh, there's quite a few um, motives running through the initiation or the origin of this book, but the first one is that I didn't come up with the idea to write it. HarperCollins came to me and asked me to write the book, and I, in one of those life moments, I immediately said yes. Um, And, but the, one of the things that is, was pretty clear to me was that I'm uniquely placed to write this book. So for several reasons, one of them is my litigation history. So I have litigated dozens of Métis rights cases. And in each case, we put the history of that local region on trial. And I have commissioned um, multiple reports for each case. Each case has at least three, maybe four experts. They all produce a historical report based on source documents about that area. So for example, Sault Ste. Marie or the Cypress Hills or um, Meadow Lake or um, you get the picture. And then they also have to submit the thousands of original copies of the original source documents with each of those reports. So I've read all of those. Now, those are actually in a technical way publicly available but certainly not easily to anyone. Court records are never easy to access for people and because I've done all those cases, I've read hundreds of thousands of documents about Métis all across from Ontario to the Rockies so that's one thing that I'm sitting in front of uh, or sitting on top of that information and the second thing is because I'm a Riel one of my cousins had like nine boxes of Riel papers. Now, I should hasten to say not every one of those is written by Louis Riel. A lot of them are the papers that surround the first book that the Métis wrote themselves about their own history. But there are Riel papers in there. Most of them are my grandfather's papers and my great-grandfather Joseph Riel's papers. So I was sitting on all of that material as well. So I think that kind of uniquely placed me to tell this
0: story. Well, I'd like you to be our witness to yesterday. So take us back to Red River in the mid-19th century and tell us how a Métis woman, for example, would see herself in relation to the surrounding First Nations, uh, the fur traders, and the very few white settlers in the area.
1: Um, Well, I think that if we were to pick, it would depend on whether you're going to pick a Métis woman who is a Francophone in living in one of the French parishes or a Métis woman who's living in one of the English parishes. So um, let me just go back to my own family history. And so that would situate us in the French parishes in St. Patel and St. Norbert in Manitoba. And so a Métis woman there would probably, I would suggest, have a pretty good knowledge of Ojibwe um, in the first place. And they would spend at least um, several months of the year, um, and as you get later on towards the 1860s, maybe as much as half of the year, out on a buffalo hunt. So there's big spring hunt that would leave from on their Red River carts from Winnipeg, head down towards Turtle Mountain, and then down towards Montana, this would be like a rolling village of Metis people, complete with their dogs and the whole family. It would be grandma and grandpa and the parents and the kids and grandchildren all traveling together and there'd be maybe as much as a thousand of them, sometimes not that many. Sometimes there could be forty or fifty or there could be a hundred and twenty-five. But there there were ones where there were over a thousand people traveling. And that would be traveling for months on the prairies in a village all the metis uh, described it. We have uh, Marie Rose Smith's recollections written down at the Glenbow Museum and she talks about how it was just a wonderful life. They all write about it as much that they loved it, this traveling that it would they talk about the freedom and the women were very much part of that. So then then they would be on the the buffalo hunt through that period and then they would come back and settle back into their little cabins on the Red River or the Seine River or the Assiniboine River, uh, their little houses, which were on Rangs, which are those long, narrow river lots that you also see in Quebec. And mm-hmm. uh, they would have, you know, a few animals in a vegetable garden. Um, vegetable gardens were fun, but they didn't hang around to watch them grow very much. They basically planted, and then they went off on the hunt and came back, and whatever was still there was good to eat. So that'd be kind of the Metis life in that year. Twice a year hunts and then the rest of the time in the community. With big feasts on um New Year's Day and um and they were all very Catholic in the Metis community, so church every week would be a very important thing. The kids were all well educated in terms of being able to be taught to be to read and write. Um because they went to Catholic schools, at least for a little
0: while. Now you start the book with the 1909 meeting of the old wolves. Can you tell us who they were? Why were they meeting in St. Vitale, Manitoba? And why did you start the book in the first place with them?
1: The old wolves, and that's my name for them. They have lots of names, les anciens, les vieux. There's lots of um, names for them. In um, Métis lore, I call them the old wolves because they look like that to me. Um, and if you can see the pictures of them, they're old men with big scraggly gray beards and shaggy eyebrows and very piercing eye looks. Um, they're, um, they were the men who were the survivors of the 1869-1870 Red River resistance and the 1885 Northwest Resistance, and so those are people like, um, or, or their brothers, younger brothers, and or in, the, some, in that meeting in 1909, there would be some of the sons as well. So my great-grandfather, Joseph Riel, was there, and in fact, the meeting was in his house in St. Patel. Uh, that house is now called Riel House. It's a national museum site, and mm-hmm. um, those men met there... Uh, because they wanted very much to keep the Métis Nation alive. They were very um, worried about all the public documents and books that were being published by the soldiers who went out to Red River and the priests and the fur traders and everybody telling their point of view of the story, but no one telling the Métis side of the story, even though they were major players in both of those situations. So they decided that it was time to write down their history. And the reason I start the book there is because I think it's a real focal point in a people's history when they decide to change from being just an oral culture and to start writing down their history um, in order to pass it on to future generations. And that was the decision that was made that day at that meeting. And so that's why I thought it was a really important point to start there and then to, to go back to the story they're telling, but to make sure that people understood stood that it was a very conscious decision on their part to write that book. It took them a long time uh, to write it. Uh, it was the Depression. It was that the First World War came up in the middle of all of that, um, and they, they had absolutely no money. These were people who were rich in spirit and probably in food and had not one dime <laughs> So I became very aware of how precious paper was, because I saw that they wrote on everything they could find, little scraps of paper they wrote on both sides, they wrote around the corners, sometimes they wrote uh, horizontally and then vertically over the same thing, just because they didn't have any more paper. So the, it, it was a test, testament of love, that first book, and I thought that moment was important. So that's why I started my book there.
0: Well, the Métis nation began with the voyageurs and their indigenous wife, but you emphasize how the children of these unions first became freemen, then Bois Brule, and then finally the Métis. So describe this evolution for us and the characteristics that distinguish the Métis from all other groups in early 19th century Canada.
1: Sure. Well, we, we usually start with the voyageurs, and so I want to make it clear that you're talking about a subset of the voyageurs here. So, the voyageurs. When I talk about voyageurs, I'm not talking about the earliest ones like Radisson, who technically are voyageurs in the French, using the French term travelers. That that's certainly true. But voyageurs to us these days is the men who paddled the canoes for the Nor'Westers. And that's who I'm talking about. So I'm not talking about the pork eaters who uh, ran the boats on the Great Lakes, because those people went from Montreal through the Great Lakes and back to Montreal. It was a sort of a circular pattern that they did. But from the end of Lake Superior going west is where you became what they called a Northman. And you actually had a baptism uh, into being a Northman. It was considered the elite of the voyageurs And so that's the subset of men that we're talking about. Now, there was another subset called the the Athabasca men, and they were the elite of the elite. Um, And so that's some of the group we're talking about, but for the most part, we're just talking about the Northmen. So these are the men who go out into the Northwest, west of Lake Superior, starting in the 1790s, basically, and they, 1780s, maybe, and they head west, and they stay out there. They don't come back to Montreal for the most part. They may go back for a visit occasionally or something like that, but for the most part, they marry indigenous women, they raise families, they love it out there, and they stay. And so what we call when we call them freemen, it means that they quit working for the Northwest Company and or the Hudson Bay Company, and they go off to become free traders, so freemen who are not under contract and to any company, and so one has to really take a good look at what that life is like, right? If you're living anywhere else, you're living under the thumb of, you know, the government or under the thumb of your priest or the um, Christian um, ideas and the ideas of heredity and law that Britain and France brought to Quebec and Ontario— and these men go out west, and there's nothing of that. There's no boss. I mean, you might once you go free. There's no boss. There's nobody, no priest, no one, to tell you what to do. And so they grab this sense of freedom and independence with both hands, and marry into indigenous tribes, which also have the same sense of independence. And then they raise their children. So, uh, they the second step to be going free. Is going free of the tribes. So initially, they go free from the trading companies, they marry indigenous women, and they basically live with those bands. But then they go free from the bands as well and set up on their own. And that's the second step to going free in order to create a new society, the new society, the Métis Nation. And that happens, I think, well, gradually, but essentially, there's a cohort that's born in the 1790s and i they to, to me they're sort of like the boomer generation there are so many of them and when they come onto their adulthood in the early 18s like then there they are the ones who create the idea of a different society and a different people and that's the idea that was born then and has survived for 200 years. And it's interesting to think they didn't have to do it. They didn't have to set up as a separate entity. They could have gone into the settler society um, or they could have gone into the first nation society and they chose differently. And it was a choice and it was a very conscious choice. And so that's the trajectory that we're following that creates the Métis nation. Uh, And ever since then, there's this idea that they are a separate people and they've always called themselves a nation and they have engaged in multiple 200-year struggle to um, sustain that idea and gone to war and died for it.
0: I was uh, fascinated by your portrait of Cuthbert Grant as the first leader of the Métis Nation. And I was in particular interested in the factors that led to his decline, including his relationship with the Hudson's Bay Company and how those interests were at odds at times with Métis interests. Um, can you describe Cuthbert Grant uh, briefly to us?
1: He, w- he was the first leader of the Métis Nation and, and I think he's the genesis of a lot of the ideas about nationhood and a separate people. Um, he was, um, by all accounts, a very dynamic young man, and he, when you look at the history, uh, to me, history is always a bit of, or trying to go back into history and figure out what happened is always a bit of triangulation. You know, you have to read all the papers that are written by everybody and anybody, and then try and figure out what you think happened, um, and what is it telling you. And but one of the things that's always clear is when all sides and everybody agree on something and one of the things everybody agrees on was that Cuthbert Grant was an extraordinary young man that he was smart and he spoke English and French and Sioux and Cree and Ojibwe um, and he was energetic and dynamic and he had a good administrative sense of things he was a born leader and um Everybody saw it. Everybody who came into contact with him knew it. And so he became the first leader. First, he was basically the war chief. Um, he was uh, leading the young men. He called them his jean um into battle. And those men, and they're all young Métis men of that cohort that I spoke of earlier, who would come from anywhere at his call. They would come from Capel. They would come from... Northwestern Saskatchewan, they would come from Alberta, if he called them, to, to arms. And he did call them. And that's amazing uh, that he had that ability in that sense. And I think the Northwest Company took advantage of that. I don't think they totally controlled it, but but I, I do think they tried to mm, ride that wave whenever they could and manipulate and it if they could. Maybe sometimes they could, but I think a lot of times they couldn't. Um so Cuthbert Grant after the battle of Seven Oaks which is sort of the origin story I call it of the Métis Nation um mm-hmm. he um he became a doctor he subsided as in true indigenous custom you are the war chief until you the war's over and then you step back and you just become a regular citizen although he's still a leader and he becomes a doctor he's just revered as a as a medical um man and um but he gets very tied up with the bureaucracy and the bureaucracy at that in that day was the Hudson Bay Company and it was in that move that he begins when there's a new generation coming along so not his generation but the next generation who are chafing under Hudson Bay Company monopoly rules and want more free trade and and get the company out of the way then he becomes too identified with the Hudson Bay Company, and they, the younger generation, you know, I think it's a standard thing. They think he's an old geezer, and nah, he's all tied mm-hmm. up with them, and yes. they're going to go off on their own, and that's sort of what happened.
0: So what was the relationship of the Métis with the Iron Alliance of Cree, Ojibwe, and Assiniboine, and what was then the significance of the battle of the Grand Coteau with the Sioux? So just tell us about this rather complex relationship with First Nation groups.
1: Yeah. So first of all, the Iron Alliance is an alliance that was created early on when the uh, Europeans first arrived and brought iron tools like iron pots and pans and weapons and needles and things like that. That's why it's called the Iron Alliance. And it was essentially always an alliance of tribes against the Sioux. That's really what it comes down to, right? So it's the Cree, the Ojibwe, the Assiniboines, the, everybody who... And the Sioux were just this incredible, um, fierce people, and there were a lot of them. So the other tribes are joining in an alliance to control the iron and to keep the Sioux from taking up too much of their territory. Now, so in the early days, that's there's a lot of shifting of territory going on. There's a lot of, uh, you know, the groups are moving out onto the plains. They're uh, adopting more and more into the uh, buffalo hunt. Um, and places are shifting for lots of reasons. Um, and so when the Métis come along at first, they are um, an individual men and their families would travel with the Iron Alliance on buffalo hunts. But as the Métis grew larger and more, you know, they started to run their own buffalo hunts, you would often see some Ojibwe or Cree working with them. So you, you could find uh, buffalo hunts where there were all kinds of people in them, not just Métis. And sometimes the Alliance was a little bit um, shall we say testy, but the point of an alliance isn't that you have to be best friends. The idea is that you won't kill each other, right you're not going to go to war mm-hmm. so it's a it's a trading um relationship and also much um embedded because of the marriages, right The metis are married in well. Into all of those peoples, into the Cree and the Ojibwe and the Assiniboines, and so those marriage relationships are hugely important in cementing their ability to be in the Iron Alliance.
0: Well, the Battle of the,
1: Oh, the, the Grand, Grand Coteau. Cote. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that battle was a battle where the Metis set off on a buffalo hunt from um, Red River. Down into North Dakota, and the they had a practice of sort of if there were too many carts and people, they would split into two trains, and separate by a few miles. And they did that, and one of the trains ran into a very, very, very large contingent of Sioux, like eight thousand or something like that. And the the it's just one of those massive, massive Sioux camps, and they were like hundred and twenty-five people. Um, and so they did the sort of Métis defensive move. You have to understand that the Métis on those buffalo hunts, they were like a mobilized, readily mobilizable, if that's the word, army. Um, they, they could on a dime turn into a defensive camp. And they did at this point. So they put their carts in a circle with the big, um, with the wheels inside all the People and the animals are inside the circle, and they dig in trenches uh, around the carts and they settle in to shoot from it. And so that's what they did. The Sioux were so sure because of their superior numbers that they would win easily that they weren't really trying too hard. They were kind of fighting with one hand behind their back. And the Metis, of course, were not doing that. For them, this was a Die a do or die situation, and they were quite convinced they were going to die, and they held off the the Sioux all day, and then uh, the next day the Sioux came back again, and they held them off again, and then the the Sioux basically said, okay, we're, we we surrender, we're not going. Well, it's not so much surrender, but we're not going to fight you anymore, and called the Metis after that, the masters of the plains, and the it was a huge moment in Metis that the Metis survived eh? and that they had defeated the Sioux and the Sioux even to this day I think is the only army that has uh, defeated the American army in a standing battle Uh, so they were they're not to be underestimated as as a force so this was a pretty amazing feat that surprised everybody and in that battle was a very young Gabriel Dumont who's another leader of the Métis who he was 13 I think at that battle, so it's a um, it's a big moment in um, Métis history, and it changed the relationship with the Sioux, who had always been uh, let's say they had a running war for since about 1815, and mm-hmm. uh, which broke out into peace occasionally, but mostly was was uh, a battle, and so the Battle of the Grand Coteau uh, put the end to that.
0: Well, starting with the Selkirk colony, uh, the relationship between the Métis and the Hudson's Bay Company has always been fraught. But it seems to me, based on your book, that it got even worse during the 1840s and 1850s. Why was this so?
1: One has to look at this, as I think, as the last gasp of the Hudson's Bay Company at its height, right they and they're grasping at straws they've always said they had a monopoly because of their charter from 1670 but in fact they were never able to keep that monopoly going the norwesters were perfect proof of that um and the Métis had always traded right under their noses with the americans um the americans came into canadian territory all the time so there was basically what it was was they were trying to double down on their monopoly and enforce it and you know it—it it was futile from the beginning. It was a, I think, a, a very bad uh, strategic idea. You can't double down on something if you don't have the means of enforcement. And they simply didn't have it. They had a bunch of traders out there in posts that were isolated, but they didn't have an army. They had no force. They had, and they're much in the minority. So the the Métis are the majority out there, and the Indigenous. Uh, the First Nations. Now, the First Nations are traitors with them, and they're not going to fight the Hudson Bay Company, but they're not happy with the monopoly either. So nobody's very happy with it. And the Hudson Bay Company is just basically, I don't know, it's almost like trying to put matchsticks up to defend their monopoly and everybody keeps blowing them down. And the Métis mm-hmm. are chafing under this monopoly and they want it over. So by the 1840s to the 1850s, that's what's going on. It's just before the Hudson Bay Company basically shifts into being a land um company which is what happens in the 1850s when they get bought out and they're sort of not necessarily a fur trading company anymore and that's what leads to the transfer of the northwest and Rupert's land and the buyout from Great Britain and everything because they're basically more interested in land than they are in furs at that point so but this is the end of that so I think I look at it as the last gasp and the Métis are just ready to the, the Métis are the ones who just push them over the edge right they're already teetering right. on the edge and the Métis just kind of uh, you blow at them, <laughs> and the, but it's a long, protracted period, and it involves the courts that are there. If you can call them courts, it's really a Hudson Bay Company court where they set up the courts and they man them, and it's all their rules. And if you don't like what they do, they just won't hear it. You know, it's not really there was no real, no real law in the West at that right.
0: point. Right now, you uh, as a a number of other historians in recent years replaced the phrase rebellion with resistance for the Red River Rebellion and the Northwest Rebellion of 1885. Uh, Can you tell us why you refer to each of these as resistances and not rebellions and not in some cases where I've seen it as civil wars?
1: On resistance is comes from my you know own childhood as a real Um, you know my grandfather and whom I remember well um, were insistent on the use of the word resistance and my great-grandfather wrote letters to you know the Devoir and places like that objecting to the use of the term rebellion and now it depends on what you mean by um, rebellion and so, and, and one has to understand too that there's a shifting definition of that over the hundreds of years, right? So, uh, for example, Riel was charged with treason, and, you know, treason was raising arms against the queen, right? But uh, that's just the fact of raising arms. But it's always a political decision as to whether you're going to charge someone with treason. So, remember, Oka. Um, the the Mohawks raised arms as well, but they weren't charged with treason. They were charged with criminal law offenses, uh, firearms offenses and things like that, but they were not charged with treason. So the the Métis have always insisted that what they were doing was protecting their rights. And they were, in, Riel said very clearly in the conventions in 1869 that we are always prepared to defend our our rights. We won't go to war willingly on this, but we will defend our rights if we have to. Um, and so they've been always adamant that this was not a rebellion, that they never raised arms in order to overthrow the government or anything like that. They were always just defending their rights. And so they say they were resisting Canada and or others who were trying to take their rights away. That's what they were doing. So that's the reason for it. Now more recently, uh academics are adopting the Metis use of resistance, but it is a long and a long in fact from day one, the Metis have always said that. So I'm I'm not taking anything new in what I'm using. I'm just using Metis terminology.
0: Right. Now we've seen some new biographies on Louis Riel come out in recent years. Uh, and I, and I know that you've read some of these in terms of preparing for this book. So where do you differ from interpretations in these newer books on Louis Riel, if at all?
1: I I think the biggest, um, difference in them is, well, actually I should say that Max Heyman's book, new one, the audacity of his enterprise, I found very intriguing and interesting because, um, uh, one of the things that, Max, and, and I think I was interested in, is this whole insanity issue. Uh, most of his biographers sort of start with that lens covering their eyes, that, oh, Riel wasn't seen, and then that cov- colors everything they wrote about him from his childhood on. And uh, I've always, be, you know, even when I was writing this book, and at my mother's 90th birthday, one of my great aunts sat across the table from me and she just shook her finger at me and she was vehement. She was in her nineties and she said, don't you dare write that Louis Riel was insane. Don't you dare. She was just Mm -hmm. adamant about it. You know, he was not insane. And so that gives you an idea of where my family's perspective is on it. Um, so now I, but I think when I read the Records and I was trying very hard to sort of put that aside and try and assess for myself what I thought was Was going on. I think it's pretty clear that he suffered from maybe depression or and or you know And I'm not a psychiatrist, but he seems to maybe be a bit manic Um, Mm -hmm. You know have highs and then real crashes, but on the other hand that has nothing to do with whether some that's not insanity right? That's that's a different concept. And even the doctors who examined him were pretty universal in saying that they didn't think he was insane at all, Um, that he had very, very unorthodox ideas about religion, which um, other people, and remember, it's the times, right? You're in the 1800s and everybody was very invested in a religious identity and and in either being Catholic or Protestant. It was a huge issue. Um, And nobody was neutral on that. And the idea that you could uh, fight those ideas of embedded church doctrine, that's what people thought was crazy. And that's what people said. That's what Roger Goulet said was, you know, no, 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 Riel's crazy. And then in the next sentence, look what he says about God, right? You know, so but some of the doctors were saying well you know look he's perfectly fine until you get him talking about religion and then he sounds crazy but i don't think that's insanity and that's kind of what i came down to was that it seemed to me that he was a man who you know either battled depression or maybe maybe was a bit manic or something like that and um but i don't i don't think that ever affected his um uh Reason Now, the other thing is that uh, Riel believed very much that he had a mission from God and he believed that he was talking to God. Now, there are millions and millions of people around the world who don't think that's anything, who think that's perfectly normal. So it's only in our sort of secular Western Protestant um, leaning culture here that we think that might be a sign of insanity. So, you know, I found that in the end, what I came down to was that the Métis didn't care. In fact, they saw him as a man who walked with God, and they saw him as a man who spoke to God, and they saw him as a saint. And that's what they called him, all the time. And it started early on when he was like 25. They were already... Uh, talking about him as a holy man so the but they never cared what they thought were looking for was that he was acting always in their interests that he fought for them and that he never did it selfishly he never took anything for it he just always fought for them and in the end he died for them so that's the way they look at it and they think okay you other people you can talk about whether he's insane or not we just don't care And we're not gonna let you color our way of looking at him by saying that because what he did for us was truly honorable and he died for us and that's what we care about.
0: So what has changed for the Métis nation since the 19th century? And can you describe the threat that is posed by what you term uh, race shifters?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, what's changed, uh, and this is especially in the last, you know, 10 years, um, is that the Métis Nation is now generally recognized, uh, certainly by government as one of the Indigenous peoples. And that started in the 1980s um, when Harry Daniels, another great Métis leader, um, got Métis included in Section 35 of the Constitution Act. And so since then... The government has um, slowly but uh, surely come to the point where they recognize the Métis Nation as an indigenous people in the same way that they recognize the Cree and they recognize the Haida and the Mohawks and the Mi'kmaq. And so the Métis Nation is um, recognized now. And that's a huge, huge, huge change in one of the things that the Métis fought for. Um, so uh, And there are negotiations going on now to resolve the land that Louis Riel negotiated for the Métis and they never got. And there's lots of self-government negotiations going on. So that's all very, a good trajectory now. And it's what they always sought. So that's, that's good. Not, not to say that that work's done. Um, It's only just begun, but it's good that it started. But with respect to the race shifters, that's a whole new, um, Idea that has grown up in Canada recently and basically since 2003. And what's happened is that there are tens of thousands of people in Canada all of a sudden who want to be Metis. And this is just shocking. It's shocking to me who grew up with this and then um, where people always thought that the Metis were stupid, drunk, um, dirty, diseased um people and nobody wanted to be Metis. In fact, lots of Metis didn't want to be Metis and hid their identities. But all right. of a sudden, people and I mean people like in Eastern Canada, um uh, and t- this is not just a few people, this is tens of thousands and growing by like uh you know thousands every year have now decided that they're Metis. And to me it's the ultimate act of colonialism. It's sort of this, okay, well, the settlers came and they tried to take all the lands and resources for themselves and they thought they'd succeeded and suppressed all the Indigenous people. And then since about 1985, or maybe a little bit earlier, that started to be flipping and Métis and the First Nations and Inuit are gaining lands and control and resources. And it seems like the settlers are going, wow, we thought we would beat you guys down. Well, if we couldn't beat you down by being colonial, then we'll become you. And if we are you, then we can stop you because you can't get lands and resources away from us when we are you. And in fact, this has been successful. In Quebec, a group um, stopped uh, of hunters decided one night that they were going to identify as Métis and they created a Métis organization. And using that organization, they were successful in stopping an Innu land claim. And so this has very insidious this this uh, identity shift has very insidious um, roots. And the other point about it is that the claims are just I think in lots of ways laughable. People are going back to find an ever so great Indian grandmother from the 1600s. So this you're talking 400 years. These people have not identified as Metis or as any indigenous people four hundred years and they are now doing genealogies and jumping up and claiming to be Metis and creating these organizations and claiming indigenous rights based on that based on nothing more than a genealogy. There's no community, there's no anything there except that tenuous ancient um genealogical uh, fact of this, you know, 20, 25, 30 generations ago that you had maybe, uh, and some people are even going further in transforming French ancestors into Uh, Indians, and then claiming that they are now Indigenous. And I have literally witnessed people stand up and say, show, wave one of these facts and say, I always knew and cry. I always knew I was Métis. And I just, this is all crocodile tears and garbage, but that's what's happening out there. And we're seeing very famous incidents of it. You've just seen Michelle Latimer uh, claim to be Indigenous. And what's her claim? That her One of her, I don't know, great aunts or somebody married somebody. So that's a lateral claim. That's not even her. But she was, you know, one of the most famous so-called Indigenous filmmakers in Canada. And Joseph Boyden's another perfect example. You've got people who are claiming, and it's happening everywhere, Indigenous people uh, are losing, real Indigenous people are not being hired at universities because these new race shifters are... uh, taking jobs in government, in um, business, in universities. Charities are having crazy days now trying to figure out who people are. And this isn't just a Canadian phenomenon. It's actually happening throughout the United States as well, um, where well, we saw Elizabeth Warren uh, go through her I'm Cherokee number um, for a while, based on, again, one of these really ancient claims to uh, indigeneity. So it's a serious issue and there's and the problem is it's growing (laughs) in Canada and the biggest problem is that nobody's got any uh defenses against it built up yet so it's uh it's just confusing everyone
0: I expect you may be involved in some of it so Jean thank you so much for joining us today
1: you're very welcome it was a pleasure talking to you
0: My guest today was Jean Taye. she is the author of The Northwest is Our Mother, The Story of Louis Riel's People, The Métis Nation, published by HarperCollins in 2019. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support this podcast series. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. And we want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly publishers that includes University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshalldon. This interview was recorded on April 7th, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.